It is December 13th, 2015, one of those precious few weeks left in the year. And I had a special blessing this morning. By the way, our message is called In Common is Uncommon. But I happened to be eating about half a pound of delectable, greasy, hickory-smoked, grade-A American bacon. And I was reading the unholy Koran while I was eating the bacon. I didn't have to lick my fingers because they were already moist. And I found a particular passage that I thought I would share with you just as weekly insight into the religion that is masquerading as a religion of peace, but in fact is an antichrist spirit. This comes to us from the ninth surah in the fifth section. It is verse 30 in the unholy satanic Quran. The Jews call Uzair a son of God. And the Christians call Christ the son of God. That is a saying from their mouths. In this they but imitate what the unbelievers of old used to say. Allah's curse be upon them. How they are deluded away from the truth. I'd like to put 1 John 1, 1 John 1 and verse 22 on the screen to contrast the incompatible Islam with Christianity. 1 John 1 and verse 23. Or if you like, 22 and we'll read 23. So what's on the screen now is 1 John 1 and 2. Ah, uh, let me, 2, 223. 1 John 2, 22. There we go. Who is the liar? That's a great question, isn't it? This was written 600 years before the man they call a prophet became a liar that has deceived 1.5 billion people. I hope it doesn't frighten you that I say such things. I've never been scared to tell the truth. It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Say that with me. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. This was our weekly insight into Islam. I simply wanted to begin this week like we've begun so many other weeks, with a very clear call. There is no such thing as Chrislam. Christianity and Islam are completely incompatible. Because Jesus Christ, who was a prophet and is the Son of God, was a peaceful, loving man who boldly confronted truth. But he never advocated cutting the head off of someone, and he certainly was not a pedophile like Muhammad. 
It's important that we draw clear lines. It's important that we understand the difference between light and darkness. And if you cannot see the difference between the most retrograde force on the planet today, that devilish thing that subjugates women and throws homosexuals from buildings and Christianity, then you are truly blind. I own more than a few firearms. I only say that because I have never caught one of my firearms reading the Koran and becoming radicalized. People read the Koran and become radicalized because the Koran is satanic. Not everybody who reads the Koran is satanic. In fact, I have a great deal of empathy for men who have been taught from birth that this is a holy book. I admire their passion and dedication in serving what they believe to be the truth. And it is the great desire of my life to see Christian missionaries sent around the world that will face the evil of Islam and see men and women liberated. I am not anti-Muslim. I am anti-Koran. Because the Koran is satanic. Our message today comes from 1 Peter 5. Has nothing to do with Islam, but I, I like to start services this way. If you're not awake, I imagine you'll get that way soon. If what I've already said is not direct enough for you, then I don't know what else I could say. Given that I am speaking in this room to those who have left their former wicked lifestyles, no longer adulterers, no longer homosexuals, no longer Islamists, and we have all of the above in the room, and worse than all of that, you have my former life in this room. We are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. Every once in a while, I hope to preach a message that is uplifting. I was up this morning at 3.45 and I listened to Pastor Sutherland's building blocks. What an amazing message. And I also was still thinking about bacon and Islam. And I was wondering how I could achieve both in one message. So I thought we would start with the Koran and move to the building blocks of the Christian faith. In Acts 2, 44, don't turn there, I'll quote it for you. We see that they met together and had all things in common. Acts 2, 44 teaches us that those who are in Christ have all things in common. The 1984 NIV says it this way, all the believers were together and had everything in common. How many believers? And how much did they have in common? All believers had everything in common. One of the reasons that the body of Christ today, or at least what is called the body of Christ seems so inadequate when compared to the book of Acts is we often have so little in common 
because we've held on to way too much of our own lives. We've not lost our identities in Christ so that we could be said to have all things in common. Well, in reading 1 Peter 5, it was my ambition to discover how to be a better pastor than I have been. How to grow in the Lord in a way that may inspire some of you to grow in the Lord. In this week, I was asked by a couple of the brothers in a workplace to share with them what I thought were essential building blocks for being a pastor. And as I was sharing it, I remembered that our elder, Charlie, has often encouraged us that every person in the room has sponsored somebody in Christianity. There is somebody here because you invited them. And everyone here is here because someone invited them. And I decided that the message that I had hoped would inspire pastors would in fact inspire all Christians since we all have some responsibility to each other. Can you say amen? First Peter, the fifth chapter, starting in verse 1. If you have a bookmark, you are going to want to bookmark this chapter because we are going to make it our home base today. I normally take you through the law, the prophets, the writings. Our messages tend to be an hour and a half in length and cover several subjects. Today, I'm going to give you some icing on the cake. We're going to anchor ourselves to one New Testament passage. Some of you already get excited about that. (laughs) To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. I think it is worth mentioning that Peter has a threefold description of himself here. This threefold description, the three things that he says about himself, are actually three things that ought to be said about all believers. He says, fellow elder, I want to read with you, keep your bookmark in 1 Peter 5. And we're going to go to Deuteronomy 7 and pick up in verse 14. Say there when you were there. In Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 14. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. The Lord will keep you from every disease. He will not inflict on you horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but He will inflict them on all who hate you. When we are talking about such radical descriptions as one nation formed out of every nation in the world. You have to understand that that would be a binding thing in someone's life. If you stood in battle for a particular piece of ground, not the whole world as Islam claims, but one place on the planet that God calls His pastor land, with your brothers and sisters, and you did that for a millennia, You would always have that in common. When Peter appeals to his fellow elders, he does not appeal as the chief elder. 
He does not appeal as the superior elder. He appeals simply as a brother. Look at Deuteronomy, the first chapter. Verse 14, you answered me, what you propose to do is good. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and as tribal officials. And I charged your judges at that time. Hear the disputes between your brothers. And judge fairly whether the case is between brother Israelites or between one of them and an alien. Even if you were a judge in Israel, you were a Brother, the point here being that no matter who you were in Israel, no matter what your position was, you were always considered a brother. Turn with me to Joshua, the first chapter. Say there when you were there. Some of the tribes received an inheritance before the other tribes. And in Joshua 1... Picking up in verse 14. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan. But all your fighting men, fully armed, must cross over ahead of your... You are to help your... Until the Lord gives them rest as He has done for you. It doesn't matter where you turn in the Bible. In fact, even the passages that describe the king of Israel... When you're in the land and you choose a king, he is referred to as a brother Israelite. In fact, he had to write the same law that every other Israelite had, and he had to go turn it into the priest so that he would never see himself as above his brothers. What an amazing thing that Peter, at this stage in his life, does not appeal based on rank and seniority. He does not appeal as anything other than a brother. Turn with me to Acts 15. Say there when you were there. Acts 15 describes what is probably the most controversial topic in all of the New Testament. Acts 15 is a council in Jerusalem. It is a meeting to discuss the most important issues of the day. And one of the most important issues would be whether or not Gentiles could be included in the faith or whether they would have to become Jews to do that. And in Acts 15, look at verse 23. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your... The apostles and elders, your... How many Catholics do you think would consider the Pope their brother? How many people in, oh, I don't know, you name the church, would consider the pastor just their brother? The heart of Christianity is that we all share a common status. We may have different functions, but we share a very common status. All of us came into Christ the same way. The wickedness in our lives was confronted by the truth 
of the gospel. We had to repent. We had to enter the kingdom of God through a sacrifice that was not our own. Every person, no matter their function, is in essence a brother. Even if you're an apostle, even if you're an elder, you are a brother. To set the tone for the what, what we're reading, pick up with me in Luke. You're going to be in Luke 22. And I want to read to you the 32nd verse. And after we've done that, we're going to go back to Peter for a little while. Because I promised you I would stay there. Twenty-two, thirty-two. But I have prayed for you, Simon. Simon is Peter. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your... You know, if you've fallen on your face some, no matter how high you rise, no matter what other people say about you, you know what you will always remember? The time that you were... Weak beyond description. And people that lose sight of their salvation condition, people that lose sight of that are not fit to lead the others. Peter, of all people, living as long as he did at this time, one of the last of the apostles, had every right in most people's mind. To simply say, do this because I told you to do this. But he appeals with a loving, gentle hand as a fellow elder. Look at your brother and say, look at the people next to you and say, we're brothers. Now, if that feels awkward for you girls, understand there's a huge difference between Christianity and many other religions, but most specifically the one inspired by that satanic book. Christianity does not view women as lesser. Women are not worth less. In fact, women who are in Christ actually are worth what a firstborn son would be worth. They are in Christ and take on the identity of Christ and to save the entire world. God chose to have His Savior born through a young girl. So talk to me about the difference between religions and I will tell you that one of them elevates the status of all women who believe and the other subjugates women, puts them in ridiculous ninja suits so that they could not be held accountable for their beauty because if somebody raped them, it would be their fault. Yeah, you should gasp in horror at that thought. Strange that in a day of women's lib movement, in a day of liberalism run amok, that there's only one group of people that is throwing homosexuals off of buildings, raping women as sex slaves, and selling the older women as house slaves. And we still say it's a religion of peace. It's almost like there's a great deception that has happened. In 1 Peter 5, to the elders among you, he's appealing 
I appeal as a fellow elder. I'm appealing to you as one of you. A witness of Christ's sufferings and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. There are three things revealed in this verse. First, there's a common status. Second, there ought to be a common testimony. Could we put Isaiah 43.10 on the screen? God declares about His people, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. One more verse. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God among you, you are my... Look at your neighbor and say, I'm a witness. We are to witness the majesty of our God. We are to witness the saving power of our God. We are to witness. Peter appealed to those in the church on the basis of a common status. We were all saved in a similar fashion. We all know weakness and the Lord's strength. He appealed to them on the basis of a common testimony. We are witnesses. Keep your finger here and turn to the first chapter of Acts. In Acts 1, starting in verse 8. Say there when you were there. Steve made it. Steve beat you there. Where are the rest of you? How about you in the back? Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, what do you do? You become a witness. What God declared through Isaiah that we would be a witness of His saving hand. Peter was a witness. He saw Christ suffering on his behalf and he spent his entire life witnessing to other people about that. So he's appealing to folks in the church who have the same status he does about the same testimony he has. When we say all things in common, it doesn't really matter what you were saved from if we were all equally lost and needed to be saved, right? We all have that in common. If everywhere you go, what you're known for is the testimony of Jesus Christ, well, then we have an awful lot in common with that, don't we? In Acts 2.32, listen to how it said. And almost always plural. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He goes on to say, David said this, and he, he finishes this entire paragraph with, we are witnesses of this fact. You can see it in verse 33. God has raised Jesus, this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Verse 32, rather. Um, no matter where you go in Acts... You can be in Acts the 5th chapter and the 30th verse. You're going to hear this repeated formula. 
In Acts 5, in verse 30, Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant. Uh, That was Acts 4.30. Acts 5.30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. Notice that we is plural. You join together with a unified testimony of what it is to serve Christ. Peter is appealing to not just the fellow elders, but all believers who know what it is to share a status that was given to you by Christ. He's appealing also to all in the church who know what it is to witness Christ. You'll talk about Christians we have nothing in common with. They're the ones that don't know their new status. Or they don't actually have it. Christians we have nothing in common with. Those who do not witness and so we have nothing in common. But man, when you've stood next to somebody outside on a street corner and been spit on, you have all things in common. When you've showed up to help lost people fix their sheetrock, or lost people move because you want to show them the love of Christ. You have all things in common with those who were there doing that, don't you? Peter is appealing to those who share the lifestyle of a real believer. The third thing that he says is shares in the future glory. So 1 Peter 5 To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Say, will share. Will share share is different than sharing now, isn't it? Do you sometimes feel like you're in glory, angel? Never? You never feel like you're in a glorious experience? I think I've seen... I've seen you praise God pretty well. And when you praise God pretty well, you might be experiencing some glory. How about you, Spence? Sometimes do you feel the glory of the Lord? I saw Prince feeling the glory of the Lord this morning. I saw that. Any of you have moments where you're not experiencing the glory of the Lord? Can we say that we're united in the belief that there is a day coming when we will never be separated from the glory of the Lord again? Well, let me ask you, if you have a status that was given to you by Christ, if you are living in community with people that have lost their lives for the purpose of witnessing what Christ has done for the world, and of people that are united because we have exactly the same hope, that we go through ups and downs and trials now, but there is a day coming when we will be swallowed by the glory of Christ. Don't you have all things in common with people like that? Curtis and I were at a uh, graduation. His beautiful, intelligent, amazing Malaika, the newest nurse in the church, Miss Mary, was graduating. And one of the things that is amazing is there was a choir. And the choir sang some things that were about Jesus. They sang about standing up and standing up and standing up. And there may not have been anybody in the choir saved. I have no idea. But around the room with thousands of people there, just a handful, like popcorn around the room, people got excited. And you heard an amen and a glory 
Praise the Lord. It sounded like church for just a minute. Now, the minister that they got to pray over the whole thing did not have the courage to mention the name of Jesus. Shame on him. But the choir sang about Jesus. Apparently, we can sing it. We're just not allowed to preach it, right? I'll preach it since I can't sing it. (laughs) Suddenly in the room, you saw immediately people that you had something in common with. In fact, if you spent some time there, you might find you had all things in common. Even though the world might look at a man like Curtis and a man like Eric and go, those guys aren't anything alike. Curtis is handsome. Eric is ugly. (laughs) Curtis dresses well. Eric calls Omar the tent maker who is now offended over Islam. (laughs) Peter is appealing on the basis of this new life in Christ. And what is his appeal? As we move to the second verse, (laughs) somebody say amen. Amen. Be shepherds of God's flock. Whose flock is it? That is under your care. It's God's flock, but who did he entrust it to? These men. Serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. If there was ever a message that the church needs to hear, we need to hear it during this time. This is God's flock. It may be under your care. Who do your children belong to? They belong to the Lord. But they're under your care. The church may appear to belong to the pastor, but it actually belongs to the Lord. And if it doesn't, something's wrong. He addresses in the second verse the motive. And this really comes to a a meaty issue. Why do you serve the Lord? Why do you witness about the Lord? Why do you read the Word? Why do you give testimony? Why do you do the things that you do? He says right here, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing. There's two words that he sets as opposed to each other here. One is anagkastos. This is a Greek word that, of course, means you must. That's why it's translated that way. But it has Hebrew cognates. In other words, throughout the Older Testament, there are Hebrew words that replace this Greek word. They're they're interchangeable. And it always has to do with a forced burden. In other words, don't shepherd the flock because they're a burden to you or you have to. Don't shepherd the flock because what else would I do for a living? Man, if I've heard that from more burned out missionaries, I don't know what to tell you. Eric, I've done this for 10 years and my marriage is falling apart and my kids aren't serving God and I hate the people that I'm called to, but what else am I going to do? Dear God, please stop representing Him. Do it immediately. That's step one. Step two, go get in a church and get fed because you have died on the vine. Why do you do what you do? The second word is hekosis. Hekosis means not just voluntary. It is a willing heart. We want you to serve the Lord not because... Something has forced you through burden and trial to serve the Lord. We want you to serve the Lord 
Because your willing heart compels you to. Now, if your status was changed by Jesus and Jesus alone, if you shared in the testimony of Jesus, if you were waiting for the coming glory of Jesus along with other people, should you have a willing heart or a burdened heart? How would you describe your walk? Toilsome, hard, a burden? Turn that off now. How would you describe your walk? Would it be um, a joyful, willing thing that you cannot wait to describe? Or has your walk become for you a burden? You know, it's an amazing thing. It's like a, a, a Greek story where we uh, have a man ties himself to a mast of a ship so that he can't respond to the sirens. He wants to respond to the sirens, but his commitment is keeping him from responding to the sirens. That's a miserable human being. Wouldn't it be a whole lot better to have died to your desire to the sirens? Church, we do Jesus a disservice when we serve Him because we must. We do Him an incredible honor when we serve Him because it's our joy. This morning I was up pretty early and uh, there's a particular room in my house next to the kitchen. And uh, I got a really good look at it. Um, and the, the garbage was stacked up in the corner. Uh, there's a little garbage can, you know, about as tall as Andrew's knee. And the trash was stacked up about this high above it. And uh, I didn't just wonder, you know, who put one over the limit. I, I wondered how we get two-thirds more outside the can than was actually in the can. And I love my children. I, I mean, I really do. They're better children than I was by far. But I know that if, uh, if I'd gone at that moment and woken my children up, any of them, and said, hey, uh, I want you to go change that garbage can that you threw 45 things in yesterday without uh, changing, they would not see it as a, I get to help the household. They would see it as, I must help the household. As a parent, how rewarding is it to you when you see one of your children want to help, want to throw their lot in with yours? How rewarding is it to you when your children become aware enough to want to pitch in? Some of you have been waiting for your children and they're in their 30s and it still hasn't happened. I know that. We are trying to teach them right alongside you. It makes God's heart smile when you do things because you have a driving passion for Him rather than a religious obligation. You know, it's interesting that it is the first motive issue that He addressed. He appeals to people on a common status, a common testimony, a common hope. And then by the second verse, He's talking to them about their motive. If it was a problem uh, of motive in the first century, do you think we may have a problem today? We're commitment-driven church. I don't want to be, but we are. Uh, one of the pastors pointed out today how easy it is to stereotype or characterize our church. You know, so many of the men have had to grow beards to hide our ugly faces. That could become part of our caricature. 
sometimes we're known for giving the hard word. Is that a fair statement? Sometimes we're known for giving the hard word. You had new hope each time a pastor joined us. When Matthew joined, perhaps he'll, he'll be the powder puff, but he wasn't. Then when Pastor Sutherland joined us, perhaps, perhaps Pastor Sutherland will, will be the Twinkie pastor, but uh, he wasn't. And LCMF becomes known for giving the hard word. And unfortunately, even we have this misunderstanding where some of our young people grow up in the Lord looking forward to giving the hard word. Having received it many times in their lives, they can't wait for the day. They get to just pow, right? There's an enormous problem with that. Sometimes a hard word has to be given. But you know what you're missing? We tell the hard word stories and we're missing the nine times in between that there was loving affirmation, a call to repentance, a hug rather than a kick in the pants. Peter is saying, hey... I want you to do this not because it's a burden to you, but you have a willing heart to do it. Oh, church, what kind of job? Psalm 73, I I don't think I want to flip all over the place this morning. I'm I'm struggling, uh, I'm getting healed as I'm preaching. But whether we're in Psalm 73 or Philippians or Colossians, that hope that we have, it's deferred. Most of what we're waiting for has not come upon us yet. We've only tasted of what is coming. So why would anybody want a job like this? Why do your pastors run around and say, best job I ever had? Because it is our passion to serve the king. I'm not motivated to correct someone. I'm motivated to please Jesus. Can you say that your actions in a day, that the motivation was not religious obligation, it was not to win an argument, it was because you just love Jesus so much you can't help but address something, teach something, witness something? Oh, I know. I could teach Paleo-Hebrew and the whole room would say, Amen. But when we're talking about the thoughts and motives of the heart that the Word judges... The problem is no one in the room is innocent. Thus, no one in the room is very vocal. Listen to the second motive issue and tell me we are not suffering from this in our day. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Before we leave that second verse, look at what he contrasted. He contrasted greed for gain with a no-reward servant's heart. Now, many of you have learned to not be greedy for money. Uh, One translation says filthy lucre there. Another says dishonest gain. The the word actually says no such thing. The the Greek is, is more along the lines of Money that shouldn't be your motivation. Now, I'll give you that is filthy lucre if, if money shouldn't be your motive. But my, my point here is, why do you do what you do? Is there any hope of reward among your brothers, among your family members? I mean, have you ever taught something 
And, I mean, you did it all for the Lord, but you also needed a certain section to cheer for you? You ever... Look, let me just talk to the guys because I don't mind making uh, guys feel uncomfortable. It's always hurt my feelings to be hard on girls, but I don't mind being hard on guys at all. So, guys, you did the dishes today, right? Your wife's outside repaving the driveway, but you did the dishes. And, uh, and you can't help it. You, you, you dropped a little hint, you know, like, uh, hey, Randy, <laughs> just want you to know, those dishes, I took care of them for you, sweetheart. Daniel walks off with his chest just a little bit bigger, you know. There's only three teacups in the dishwasher, but he did it. Now, if Randy doesn't notice that, how does Daniel feel? She'd done the dishes 7,000 times, but he did them once, and we need to have an award ceremony for it. Okay, how many of you got young children, children under two? Raise your hand. Let's talk diapers. Yeah. Some of you are saying, let's not talk diapers. She's changed 98 out of every 100 diapers. You changed two and you talked about it for a week, right? Why do you do what you do? Maybe money is not the reward you're looking for, but let me ask you, if you could receive no reward anywhere except Jesus, do you do and act the same way? Because that's the heart that Peter is appealing to. And let me ask you, how much reward was there in his life? We see some moments where he did amazing things, but he was also publicly humiliated over and over and over. And the ultimate reward in his earthly life was to be crucified with his wife. I think that it is so easy to get off track that Peter appeals to those that have had the same experience he has. Hey, do you have a testimony? Has Christ changed your status? Do you share in the hope to come? Watch your motives. Very first church in the book of Revelation that's addressed is the church at Ephesus. He tells them to return to their first love. Isn't it an interesting thing that we can still be doing the right things but do them with the wrong motives? But the Word will address the attitudes of the heart. It will adjust even your motives. Was the apostle off base when he did this? Probably not. Turn with me to Proverbs 15. In Proverbs 15, and I'm going to give you a few scriptures here in Proverbs as we turn. I'm going to read verse 27. A greedy man brings trouble to his... But he who hates bribes will live. I want you to notice that there is an equation here. Greed brings death to your family. But if you hate dishonest gain, if you hate reward for service, life comes. So let me ask you, is it okay then for us to be driven by desire to succeed in a capitalistic sense? You know where we ought to be driven to succeed? In our obedience to the Lord. 
If the Lord happens to add wealth to you, there will be no sorrow with it because He will add it to you in a way that you can handle it. Can I say that most of you cannot handle it just like me and that's why you don't have it? And the ultimate proof of how bad it is for people to gain wealth is what happens to lottery winners in their third year. How is it that you can win millions of dollars and go bankrupt and that be the absolute uh, expectation with certainty of all lottery winners? I mean, when I say all, it's hyperbole, but it's the vast majority. And we can see that history and know that the next ten who win the lottery, seven of them will be bankrupt within five years. We can know that statistically speaking. You know why? Money is not the answer to any of your problems. It never has been. A greater dependency on the Lord is the answer to your problems. The apostle is addressing us as a fellow weak human being, as a fellow sharer in the sufferings of Christ, as a fellow waiting for the testimony of Christ to be perfected and that the glory of God's come to earth. And the first thing that he does is address our motives. How about Proverbs 28? Say there when you're there. 28, 25. 28, 25. Hey, man, thank you, Rico. Say it like you're from Texas. All right, you very few Yankees in the room. Repeat after me. There. <laughs> A greedy man stirs up dissension, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. Do you hear what greed does? It causes trouble. But trust in the Lord causes life, prosperity. Uh, Turn the page again. Get to Proverbs 29 in verse 4. By justice, a king gives his country stability. But one who is greedy for bribes tears it down. Do Do you hear in this verse how destructive greed can be? And yet... From pulpit after pulpit, the motives of Christians are being appealed to as gain for more. Why do you give? So that you get back a seven-fold return. Why do you go on missions? So that God will bless you. Why do you serve God? So that it will bless everything in your life. This is idolatry. And in the first century... An elder is writing a letter to a church and he appeals not as the supreme leader. He didn't think himself as highly as these popes think of themselves. Instead, he appeals as an ordinary brother. And the first thing he says is, we really need to watch our motives, especially where money's involved. Guys, money may not be the thing, but reward of some kind might be. Let me tell you what is ultimately at stake regarding the flock then. In John 10, 13, he said the hired hand cares nothing for the sheep. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. You will never know whether you are really caring for the Lord and his sheep or you are caring for the reward as long as there are rewards. But when you can receive nothing but persecution for preaching the truth, for sharing the truth, for caring for people, then your motive can be clear before the Lord. You know, it might be why you're blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
Because when what you receive for doing right things is persecution, then there's nothing cloudy about the event or the ordeal. Now, let's recap this just a second. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock under your care. God's flock under your care. Serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing. Willing to what? Care. You know, Christian service that starts somewhere other than very deep compassion for the condition of the person that you are ministering to is off base. You know what's wrong with can't wait to give the hard word? What's wrong with can't wait to be harsh in your use of authority? You know what's wrong with being overbearing? It's not like Jesus. Say, but wait, wait, Eric, I've heard you say so many times. I'll go ahead and say it's my fault that you have a misunderstanding. So many times, look how bold Jesus was. Look how direct Jesus was. It was in proportion to how loving Jesus is. He could be that bold. He could be that direct. You know why? He was that loving. Most of my Christian walk, people have criticized the way that I raise children, some to my face and some privately. They've never criticized the results, though. And you know what they're not seeing? They're not seeing the times that we pull them into our bed and prophesy, the times that we wake them up and read Scripture to them, the times that they're doing Bible drills with us. They're not seeing the times that we are affirming them in every way. All they're doing is telling the story of, did you hear how that pastor threatened his son? Well, yeah, and God will threaten you too. Somehow or another, we misunderstand motive when we simply see isolated events. And because those events stand out to you, they may even be what you idolize. This older, wiser man than all of us is speaking and he's saying, look, we all came from the exact same status. Listen, we all share the same kind of testimony. All of us are waiting for the hope to be revealed. Care for the flock and watch your motives. Now, that's an incredible statement. If it was the last thing that he could have written, and this was near the end of his life, wouldn't you think that he would have told us more about eschatology? And if you want to learn more about eschatology, I'm going to do that Monday night at my house. Okay, Monday night, this Monday, all about eschatology. But today I want to talk to you about your motive for serving the Lord. Could you be said to have all things in common with Jesus? Now, it's an interesting thing. In the first verse, we have three things that he mentions. In the first verse, he mentions fellow elder, a witness of his sufferings, a sharer in the glory. Say three. In the second verse, he mentions two things. He really mentions God's flock in your motivation. And then he mentions not greedy, but eager to serve. Say two things. How many things do you think we're going to focus on in the third verse? One thing. Look at verse 3. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. You want to know how it is that you lead? How it is that you disciple? Not lording. Say, I'm not Lord. If you're not Lord, you cannot be lording, right? Not Lord, but an example. 
The primary way that we influence behavior, the primary way that we show our love to people is through the example that we set. You know, one of the saddest things on earth is the most prolific evangelist that our church has ever seen repetitively invited people who attended church better than the prolific evangelist. What does that say about an example? Say, man, I want you to be saved. I believe your whole life will be changed. I'm so excited for you. If you would just visit our church, you could have an experience with the Lord. The person comes, has the experience, and the person who invited them is not there that week. Well, maybe it'll be next week. Except, you know, they're batting about, you know, two services a month. Guys, you're an example to someone. If you meet the qualifications of the first verse, that you have a common status, that you have a common testimony and a common hope, then there is someone in this room that came here because you told them about it. What kind of example are you setting? It is so easy to look at people. And when you give folks the chance to disciple others, because we're a church that does that, we, we believe in empowering you in every way. It is extraordinary that somebody who's been in Christ just a few years will talk to somebody who's been in Christ six months like they are a child incapable of doing anything right, overbearing in their use of authority. And then I told them, you don't think like that. And then I told them, you don't say that. And then I told them, you know what you do. Man, I've, I've been in Christ 22 years. I don't tell people that. We, we make suggestions about what we think the Word says to us all. We encourage people about the guidance that we think the chief shepherd is giving us. We never tell people, you must not, you cannot. Here's how you think, how you eat, how you walk, how you talk. But I watch people even in this room and the way that you relate to others. As soon as you get just a little bit of authority, you're Lord. If Peter were here, and he is through this living word, he would address us all as having come from a common status, a common testimony with a common hope. And he would tell the oldest and wisest and the youngest and the most immature, Hey, watch your motives. Let's lead by setting a great example. Now, I'm going to confess what I'm sharing with you here in this next verse may not be such a great example. Uh, and yet, I think it'll be a pertinent teaching tool. Turn to Third John. Talk about a bad example. I want to read this to you. In Third John, I'm going to pick up with you in verse 8. Yeah. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, say that with me, Diotrephes. That's hard to say it, isn't it? Diotrephes. Come on, say it out loud. Diotrephes. Yeah, we're all still mumbling, aren't we? Listen, you'll know why I say this here in a minute. We're going to call him Darth. Say Darth. Darth. Some of you will blush with this. Darth Feces. <laughs> not not Diotrephes. We're going to call him Darth Feces for a minute. I wrote to the church. 
But Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. The Apostle John is writing, and who has nothing to do with him? Darth. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing. Gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do good. I'm sorry, want to do so and puts them out of the church. Does it sound like he's in a position of authority? Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. How bold is that? Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. Now you got to love this. We have Darth and we have Demetrius. And he says, hey, this guy, I'm going to call attention to his behavior when I get there. This one, we speak well of him and so does the truth. What if that was a letter written to this church? How would you feel about that? By the way, what do people say John was the apostle of? It's the last epistle he wrote right there. Would Darth describe him as loving? Sometimes it depends on whether you want to be Diotrephes or Demetrius as to whether you see a life-giving rebuke as love. Sometimes it's the person who who uh, determines whether or not it's considered loving. Now, can we say that these men had entirely different motives? They must have because their actions uh, prove that out over time. You know what most of the Bible difficulties books do? They argue about whether or not Diotrephes is saved. Nobody argues whether or not he was a leader in the church. Can you imagine spending your life in a position and then years after your life, people look back and cannot tell whether or not you serve God from a pure motive or an impure motive? See, the reason that we're supposed to care for each other is it's possible for us to get off track. It's not just possible, it's likely. The reason that we're supposed to dwell together with our fellow believers and with a similar testimony and a similar hope is because we're going to need each other to finish right. How many times, raise your hand if you've received a life-giving rebuke. If your hand's not up, what does that mean? Was there nobody who cared enough to tell you? Or does something about your life broadcast that you are not interested in correction? Church, it's not my desire to be heavy-handed. I, with all my heart, want to preach a light-hearted New Testament word today. Listen to what is at stake. This apostle is letting us know that we all start in the same place. That we all undergo similar testimonies. That we're all waiting on the same hope. But we have to constantly check our motives. Because you know what? 
even in church leaders in the New Testament church, some of them got so far off base that we now cannot tell their... Let me ask you, would Diotrephes pass the Matthew 7 test of you will know a tree by its fruit? Okay. Would you pass that test? When you judge yourself now, are your motives pure? In verse 4, we find out what did motivate Peter. In verse 4, he says, And when the chief shepherd... Say chief shepherd. shepherd. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. Listen, he is the shepherd who owns the sheep. He is responsible for Cody's life. He's responsible for Pastor Sutherland's life. He's responsible for Elder Steve's life. He is the chief shepherd... Do you know what you are? You're a part of the flock. If he's the chief shepherd and some people's jobs are helping him shepherd, let's just say, a portion of the flock, is there anybody whose job is not to shepherd anyone? The requirements for ministry start in your own family. So I I would submit to you that every mother is shepherding her children, that every husband is the chief shepherd in his own house, that even children we give responsibilities to with pets so that they learn how to shepherd. Are their motives important? You don't want to go throw your food and say stupid llama, right? You want to care for the things that are under your care, right? You want right motives towards them so that God will bless them. How many of you have children? Do you care whether the teacher teaching your children cares about your child? Or do you only care that two plus two is four? See, motives are important. In fact, I come from a private school family and they will tell you very quickly that the problem is not the children, it's the parents. Because no matter what the teacher does, the parent always ascribes to the teacher false motives regarding their child. Their child is not the problem. The problem is everybody else's child. And it's difficult because without a standard, how can you know? Well, the Word of God is our standard. Verse 5. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. In verse 5, this is often thought of as a contrast between the old and the young because we move from speaking about elders to speaking about young men. But what were elders before they were elders? An elder speaking to a young man reminds him about the power of submission. Do you know why? Because in Peter's youth, he learned about the price of rebellion. He knows what it is to look right at Jesus and say, No, Lord, never will they do this to you. And then get a rebuke in his face in front of all of his friends that says, Get behind me, Satan. Was that loving? I say so. Yes, it was. Did it feel loving to Peter? Probably not. Was it life-saving, though? Yes. Peter knew the cost of rebellion. And so he's telling young men as fast as he can get them the message, there is power in submission. I want to give you a very easy, very quick test to know whether or not you should ever rebel against authority. 
put Acts 4, 19 on the screen. The elder ought to know the power of submission because in his youth he experienced the price of rebellion. Acts 4, 19. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. Do you know when you have the right to tell an authority no? You have the right to tell an authority no when to do so is obeying God. You never have the right unless your rejection of that authority is based on the higher authority. Let me ask you, how are you doing with that? Do you resent it when, when an authority in your life tells you to do something that's unfair? Went to a graduation, I think I mentioned. A two-star general told stories about his life that were unfair. You know, it's interesting because I listened to the crowd and I don't think they got what he was saying. I think what they heard him say is life is unfair and it's going to be unfair for you and just deal with it. It's not really what he was saying. He was saying it's unfair but there's glory in it if you handle it the right way. See, if you suffer for doing something wrong, what is that to your credit? But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, If you suffer injustice and you handle it in a godly way, do you know what it is? Glory when He returns. So let me ask you, is it a bad thing if you're treated unfairly? No, No, it's just more glory. And He's telling young men this early on so that they will build a life that doesn't need to collect burdens, that doesn't need to serve God because I have to, that serves God because... You get to. Oh, amen. I have one more boss who has no idea what they're doing. Amen. Because every day I submit to this, I am building in the kingdom of God. And you know what? Two people in this room know the boss doesn't know what he's doing. He knows and I know. And if I love him anyway, if I submit anyway, oh, what kind of witness will that be? Because we know what everybody else is going to do at the coffee pot. See, this is God teeing it up for you. But instead, how do we feel because our motives are wrong? We feel abused. We feel mistreated. Well, friends, how is it going to be when our government completely cowtails to a satanic religion and you become the problem? When that happens, I imagine Christians are going to feel abused and mistreated. I say when we're abused and mistreated, it's glory for God. Incidentally, there's been no rapture in Syria or in Iraq. There's only glory for those saints. Let's pick up in verse 6. I'm going to bring this to a close relatively soon. It uh, feels like a sleepy Sunday in here. You know, it's okay. It's... it's It's all right. My motives are pure. (laughs) Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time. I'd like to just sit on that for a second. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand that He might lift you up in... You know, there are two Greek words for time. One is chronos. Kronos just keeps going no matter what. The earth is spinning around the the sun. 
and uh, 365 days a year is Kronos, 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 Kronos. But there are Keros moments. This is a second Greek word. And Keros are those opportune times. They're more than just hours of the day. They're the time is coming and bam, is now here. Kronos is moving, but Keros has arrived. It's that moment when divine appointment happens. Listen, he's saying to us that God will lift us up in due time. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Do you know what that literally means? It means if you are having a bad day, it's to the glory of God. If you... uh, are spending all of your theological energy trying to decide whether Satan is attacking you or God is testing and refining you, stop it. What difference does it make? He will lift you up in due time. Your job, whether you got into the position you got in because you're sinning or because He simply is testing you or disciplining you, it makes no difference. Your response is the same. It's like saying, did he shoot him or did he shoot him? It makes no difference to him. He's got the same bullet wound. What are we going to do about it? Now, who is saying this? Peter. Did Peter know what it was to be lifted up in due time? Peter goes from the man who denied Christ to the man who is shadow, is healing people in the name of Christ. You remember we read Luke uh, 22, 31 through 22 earlier? He says in Luke 22, 31 through 22, Hey, Satan desires to sift you. Is that fair? Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Does he know what it is to be lifted up in due time? Is he angry and bitter at Jesus? Is he mad? Lord, why do you let this happen to me? Instead, who is he upset with? Himself for not getting it right. But God was able to help him get it right, wasn't he? I mean, by the way, in Acts 5... 15 through 16. Listen to this. This, We're going to put this on the screen so you can meditate on it. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. How many were healed? All of them. How many men in history can you say walked into a town and their shadow healed, not some, all of them? Peter knew exactly what he was asking of you. He knew exactly what he was encouraging us to do. He said, hey, could you just submit to what God's doing and respond in a godly way? Because there's a price to rebellion. It hurts. It's humiliating. He said, while you're young, learn to submit. And God will raise you up in due time. There is a time that God would do this. Are you frustrated with where you're at in life? 
Is it not happening fast enough for you? Did you have your goals set in one place and now they're redirected in another? What if we simply went back to, I'm excited that I have a status that Jesus gave me. I have a common testimony with all of the people in this church. We have the same hope. I'm examining my motives now. Do I only serve the Lord if He does what I want Him to do? Or do I serve the Lord without hope of reward of any kind? Because that's the only way you'll ever know if your faith really is pure. Am I going to be Demetrius or Diotrephes? Because they were both leaders in the church. I think I'm going to read to you just a handful of scriptures here. Cast all your anxiety on Him, for He cares for you. You have a footnote in your Bible that says Proverbs 3, 34. But you know what? Psalm 55, 22 is really the psalm that I think he's quoting. Listen to this. This is the complete Jewish Bible. Psalm 55 and verse 22. Unload your burdens on Adonai. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. What if burdens were bad motives? What if obligations were bad motives? What if we were all meant to carry a certain load, but none of us were supposed to let this walk become burdensome? Our offerings were supposed to be free will offerings. Our praise was supposed to be free praise. Our service to God was supposed to be out of a willing and obedient heart motivated by care for another person. The last time you got into a conversation with someone about Jesus, was it because you were angry with them or because you cared for them? I can honestly say I do a lot of both. Sometimes I'm angry that they're speaking about my king the way they are, and I never let it lie. I mean, it's between you and the Lord. If you want to let it lie, I don't let it go. Um... But isn't it worth examining? Do we really have this person's best interest in mind? Have our motives ever so subtly shifted to being right or shifted to some sense of reward? I think at the end of the day, if you ask Diotrephes if he was right, he would say yes because he was deceived. If you asked him if his motives were pure, he would say yes because he was deceived. I bet if you asked Demetrius, <laughs> Demetrius would say, I need to repent. <laughs> I, I'm in constant need of repentance because I got my status the same way you did. I was a sinner that has been granted this position. I bet, I bet Demetrius would say, you and I are not really any different. I may have been serving God longer than you, but we have exactly the same testimony and the same hope to be revealed. I bet Demetrius would appeal as a brother, but Diotrephes appealed as if he were your Lord. This next passage says, Be self-controlled and alert. 
your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for something, someone to devour. In 2 Kings 17, I'm not going to go there. You can pencil it down. The people of God were displaced. Foreigners came into Samaria and they took over the area. And when they took over the area, God sent lions among them. Peter is definitely thinking about at least two passages. In 1725, he says that the people of the land did not know what God required, and so the lions were devouring them. You know who gets devoured? Those that don't know what God is asking of you. They don't understand it. They won't receive it. You have a bad motive and you don't know it because you are not searching your heart. The truth is, is that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, He will straighten that out. Then when we resist the lions, they'll flee from us. In 2 Kings 17, they brought in priests to teach the people what God required of them. And when they taught the people, do you know what happened? The lions left. I'm not lion food. And you should not be lion food either. All we have to do is be humble before the Lord and He'll show us how to resist and how to win. If you're enduring something right now, it's because your loving King thinks that it's good for your development. That may be hard to hear, but it's the truth. He is capable of anything. And He withholds no good thing from those who fear Him. So if you are enduring something right now, you can confidently, 100%, whether it was your sin that did it or it was His discipline, if He is allowing you to endure it, it is for one reason, for your benefit. Do you really want to kick against that and become lion food? Or would you rather humble yourself and let Him exalt you in due time? The last thing that I wanted to show, the second scripture, by the way, was Proverbs 28, 15. It's a, a wicked man is like a, li- a wicked man ruling over people is like a roaring lion or a charging bear. See, Peter's mind is still on what it's like to be an elder with bad motives. It destroys the people. It destroys them. If we don't do this right, then the example that we set for others allows them to operate out of motives that are not right, out of actions that are not right, and they get eaten alive. This letter closes with this phrase. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. What an interesting thing. In Acts 12, 12, Mark is said to be the son of Mary and also called John Mark. In Acts 12, 13.5, he leaves with Barnabas and Paul to go on a missionary journey. In Acts 13.13, he has seen spiritual warfare with a sorcerer, got scared, and has gone home. In Acts 15.36-39, such a sharp dispute breaks out between Paul and Barnabas over whether or not John Mark can go on the next missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas actually part ways. This would be just like if Matthew and I parted ways or Wade and I parted ways over whether or not one of you could go on a mission trip. I mean, it was as serious as could possibly be. 
How would you like to be John Mark and that be your legacy? We're going to close in the book of Mark. Turn with me to the first chapter of Mark. In the first chapter of Mark, it would be very easy to find. Angel, this one's in red letters. Mark 1.14 After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. Somebody say, the time has come. In Wade's message, Building Blocks, he mentioned that there's a man who's paid an awful lot of money to say, it's time! Right before sporting events. It's his only job. The first red words... In the book of Mark, the time has come, he said. I told you there were two Greek words for time, chronos and keros. In chronos, it would be simply we fell to the calendar date. It's here. But that's not what this is. This is keros. It seems that Mark, of all people, just like Peter, publicly humiliated in the Scripture... How many people can you think of that their mistakes were written down in the eternal Word of God in the best-selling book of all time for all mankind to read? Peter's failure is written for the whole world. Well, so was John Mark's. But he didn't stay there. The first words that he records are different than all of the other Gospels. Do you find that interesting? John Mark records a different beginning than all of the others. And it begins with, it is time, or the time has come. In other words, this is your unique opportunity. He knew what it was to miss an event. He missed a missionary journey with the Apostle Paul. He knew what it was to fail in an event. He went with Paul and Barnabas and got so scared that he left immediately. But the brother endured, and in due time, God raised him up to write a book of the New Testament. And the first words that he writes, the keros has come. This is your heavenly opportunity. This is the moment in time for you to be benefited. And how do you do it? The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. See, these writers, whether it is Peter or it is Mark, understood something that we need to grab hold of. Failure is inevitable. But it's not fatal. Your motives are never completely pure, but they are being purified. Your walk is never completely whole, but it's declared holy. If we wait for that moment when you have it all together, it'll never come. If you wait for the moment to start getting it together, that time has come. It's never too late for us to change our motives. It's never too late for us to examine why we do what we do and take 
new steps. It's never too late. The key to every good thing in the kingdom, every good thing, is repentance. Have you been too harsh in your use of authority? You can fix it. You can fix it right away. It's amazing what a hug will do. Have you been too lax in addressing the things of God because you're full of fear? It can be changed immediately. Do you need a certain sense of acknowledgement and reward for the things you do? It can change this moment. You look for something that cannot be praised by anyone, but that the king loves, and you do it, and do it immediately. The time's come. The Keros moment is here. You know why? Because the calendar's going to keep moving forward whether you seize your moment or not, but you're not guaranteed any more of these moments. Could you stand to your feet?